The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Well, uh, hey, if, if, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Chris. I am the lead pastor here. Normally, I would ask you to grab your Bibles and open them up. But uh, if, if you're newer with us, what we normally do is we open the Bibles and we preach verse by verse, kind of chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. And we will be doing that in just a couple of weeks, a couple more weeks. We will be starting our fall sermon series, which will be an in-depth study of the book of uh, Ephesians. OK, so I know I've taught, told you that last week. I'm telling you that. That again, uh, this is going to be a really great book. I'm looking forward to spending 13 weeks walking through these five chapters together. So it's going to be great uh, after Labor Day. But for the next couple of weeks, okay, we're going to be doing a quick mini series that we're calling What I Learned. Okay, sabbatical what I learned because this summer for uh, the, the, the 12 weeks this summer, uh, I was gifted a sabbatical, a summer sabbatical, my first one in ministry, uh, in my ministry career. And so for 12 weeks, Marcy and I, we weren't around here. I did not do the work of the lead pastor here at Fathom. And the Lord um, taught us some really interesting things during our sabbatical, important things that we felt, I felt like I wanted to bring and preach to you. So we're breaking all the rules and I'm preaching some theologically topical sermons, and we will. I just I, I keep saying the Ephesians thing because we're going to get back to what we normally do 90% of the time. Uh, so last week I talked about the theological topic of the church. Right? We talked about the universal church versus the local church and that you need a local church. I made the case that Christians need meaningful connection and membership with a local church, with a particular people in a particular place at a particular time, and not just being universal only Christians who kind of glean from the mass of content that's out there in the Christian digital world. So that was last week, and we kind of dug into that. And, uh, and I came to the conviction, a little bit of a firmer convic- conviction on the local church, after being essentially away from my local church for three months and only existing in the universal church. And, and so I told you about that last week, and some of you told me that, that, that I made sabbatical sound lousy. <laughs> and like I, I, I mean, did that happen? Did I, did I kind of come across like I didn't enjoy 12 weeks off this summer? Because I, I did, okay? Just wanted you to know that I, I kind of meant to do a little bit of like a, we learned some things that were harder in the midst of sabbatical, but it was, it was, sabbatical was not a big bummer, okay? I just need you to know that. Actually, one of the best parts of our time away was we took our daughter Harper to Disneyland for the first time. Okay, uh, Harper is our only daughter. She is seven years old, so she is perfect Disneyland age, right? She's the perfect age. She's young enough for everything to be completely magical and real, right? It was not cheesy at all. Everything was real, but she's old enough not to melt down in a fit of screaming in, for like in an hour-long line to ride on the back of a flying elephant, right? Which is actually something I witnessed, and their kids were behaving awesome, all right? Uh, you'll get that joke later. Now, I expected, as I went to Disneyland with my daughter, I expected the best part of Disneyland to be the rides. I thought Indiana Jones, all right? Space Mountain, Pirates of the Caribbean, Star Wars. Like, I, I, I thought that's going to be the top, like the high watermark for our time. Uh, and, and that's, the reason why I thought that is because that's what I was pumped for because I'm a guy, 
right? But that was not the best part of Disneyland for a seven-year-old girl, okay? Uh, the most important part of Disneyland for Harper, it wasn't the rides, it wasn't the food, okay? It wasn't the entertainment. It wasn't even all the stores where we bought her highly overpriced goods, okay? It was not any of those things. It was getting her picture with the characters. That, that was the most important thing. It was the princesses, okay? I, I just, just so you're aware, now it wasn't really my thing, all right? But... Uh, <laughs> But I, I want you to know, what you need to know about Disneyland is that you can fast pass most of Disneyland. You can use the app and pay the extra so that you can actually get to the front of the line and not wait for hours in line, except the princesses. You cannot fast pass the princesses, okay? So we got in a two-hour line to meet some Disney princesses, and Harper was a champ, right? Just waiting in line, waiting in line, waiting in line. And here's what finally happened when she got to the princesses. Uh, let's see the first picture. There's Snow White. Okay, she was really excited about that. Uh, the second one was Cinderella. She was telling her something important. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what that was, okay? And then finally, this was her favorite, Ariel, okay, with legs, Ariel with legs. <laughs> now notice, she's holding her foot like this, which is something she does when she gets nervous. So, I mean, it was so cute, I almost threw up all over Ariel. <laughs> it was so cute after two hours, okay? So we met all of those, those princes, princesses, it only took half a day. All right, it only took half a day. What a bargain, okay? Now, now, the only other picture that we just, like she just had to have was a picture with Minnie Mouse, okay? So we hunted down that mouse, right? Because she is on the move constantly, all right? We hunted the mouse down. We waited in line again. As we approached the target, Harper leans over to Marcy and she says this, Mom, this is the most important picture of my life. <laughs> so here it is. That is the picture. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. This one was worth literally a thousand bucks. Now, I, I told you last week about some of the harder things that went on during sabbatical some of the difficulties, some of the struggles, some of the hard things about not being with you. But, but I'm sharing about some of the good parts of sabbatical this week because I want to make a point dichotomizing between the two, okay? You, you can read almost every single experience, event, and idea as both good and bad. You can look at most things and see good and bad in them. Very seldom are there kind of black or white experiences, high or low experiences, good or bad things. Now, that, I'm not saying there's relative truth in everything, but I'm just saying it's, it's really easy to look at almost everything and, and have two perspectives on it. It's almost always a mix of both. And as I was on sabbatical, I experienced both highs and lows, good and bad. And I missed some big cultural moments as the pastor of this church. Like, I missed some things. That, that, did you realize a lot happened this summer? Lots going on in our world. Uh, the war in Ukraine is six months old, still going. Okay, there's horrible, that horrible mass shooting in Texas, in Uvalde, Texas. I missed that. I wasn't here to, to walk with you in that. 
our, our world economy is on this weird precipice of inflation. Is it inflated? Is it not? Are we on a breakdown? I mean, it's all over the place. And then, frankly, I missed the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I missed that to, to be with you in that. And I also, we, uh, the, the crazy backlash that we've experienced on both sides, even since that monumental case was overturned. It's been a pretty substantial summer of news, and I'm sitting at home reading the news. And, and, and last week, while I, while I reflected on preaching about the church, today I want to tackle the topic of the world. The church was last week. Today I want to talk about the world, because I don't know if you've noticed, but on almost every single one of those me- things that I mentioned, uh, there are kind of polarizing, seemingly opposite opinions of what is good or bad of what's right or wrong, of what's true or false. Now, hear me, even amongst professing Christians, you can have both sides of the equation. How is it that even among believers, we see things oftentimes so differently? Well, I did some reading this summer as I was on sabbatical uh, that kind of helped me on doing some cultural analysis around the world we live in. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I read a couple of books. I listened to some podcasts and found some helpful analysis that I think can aid us in trying to understand why things are so polarized. So uh, just so you know, all, almost all this stuff I'm going to tell you today is not my own. I did not create it. I am not smart enough to do that. Okay. This is stuff I cobbled together from a few books, from podcasts, guys who are way smarter than me. And so I want to to present four different worldviews, or we'll also call them lenses, lenses by which you can see our world and interpret things. These are the four most prevalent worldviews, I think, that we see in our world, but also in the church and even in our own lives. Okay, these are lenses by which we see the world that we're living in. So every news article You might read it, and it might be colored by the lens that you're looking through. So that's what we're going to do today. It's going to feel almost luxury. Deal with it, okay? I'll preach a sermon in a couple of weeks. This is more of a lecture, okay? Uh, We'll have some jokes in there, too. Okay, let's get to work. Uh, um, Let's talk about these lenses. I'm going to put a chart up on the the uh, slide here. This is a chart that I'm going to fill in as we go. I'm borrowing this from uh, another church and a ministry in Australia. But these are the four worldviews and lenses. And we're going to ask four questions of each worldview and work through this. If you're a note taker, today's the best day of note taking in the history of Fathom Church, okay? (laughs) These are the four questions. What is the purpose of life? Based in this worldview, what is the purpose of life? What is the world? How do we define the world that we live in? What is sin? They may not even use the word sin, but what is sinful? What is broken? What is problematic? What's sin in this worldview? And then what does this worldview propose as a solution to the ails of this world? Okay, what's the purpose? of life, what's the world, what's sin, and what's the proposed solution. And I think it'll be easy. I think it'll be easy to see these lenses at work in our larger culture. I think it, I want to challenge us to do a bit more internal work, the harder work of saying, what lenses am I predisposed to look through? Because I think you'll see that that while we all would want to say, yeah, we've got gospel lenses on and we're always thinking like, like godly biblical Christians, we've got these lenses interchanging very often in our own minds as well. So here we go. I'm gonna do the first worldview or lens, and that first worldview or lens is the hedonistic lens. 
the hedonistic lens. Hedonism, okay? The purpose of life in, in the hedonistic worldview is pleasure. Pleasure. The purpose of life, if you are a hedonist, is to feel all the good feelings in the whole world that you can. All the good. Everything good. You ought to pursue pleasure and comfort and delight anything that makes you happy, all of the good experiences, go on all the trips, buy all the trinkets, all the toys. It's all about living the good life. It's about pleasure. It's hedonism. What do the hedonistic lens kind of people, how do they view this world? Well, the world is a playground. The world's a playground. Right? The world is where you should go and enjoy everything that the world has to offer. Right? The, the context for your pleasure-seeking mission of life is the world. The mountains are calling. Right? You got that bumper sticker? Eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Like that's the hedonistic cry. The world exists as a conduit for your pleasure. That's where the world is. But in this view, then, what is sin? What is sin? Well, sin is any one or anything that might prevent pleasure. Any one or anything that gets in the way of you living life. Right? So, so there are um, things that are considered repressive to pleasure, and those are bad and wrong and sinful. So rules that might keep you from doing things, morals that might keep you from experiencing things. Those are the things that we're going to say no to. So you can think of the caricature of like the 1950s kind of leave it to beaver world, right? Where there's bland, it's black and white, it's suburban, it's prudish. That's kind of that, that image up against kind of the 60s into the 70s, the free love kind of Woodstock hippie movement, right? Those two worlds clashing that's what we're talking about. That square, regressive, black and white version of life is actually sin. It's actually preventing you from all the good that this world has to offer you. And it should be stopped. Why wouldn't you just want me to be happy? Why wouldn't you want me to do the things that I want to do? As long as it's not hurting anybody, why wouldn't you want me to? That's kind of that mantra of the hedonistic. So then what's their solution? For the ails of this world, for the kind of, you know, repressive rules that might be on us from society. Well, their solution is this. Just do it. Nike, right? That's what, just do it. Everybody just needs to chill out and live your life as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, right? That's their, that's their one caveat. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone, just do it, man. Just do it. Express yourself. Say yes to your desires. Follow your heart, right? Look inside. Just do it. That's the hedonistic worldview, the hedonistic lens. And there are tr bits of truth, okay? Bits of biblical truth in all of these lenses. So I want to point that out. Uh, there is a truth in the scriptures that God created pleasure. He, the, he's the one who actually came up with pleasure. You realize that? He didn't have to make things feel the way they feel, taste the way they taste, see the way they seem. He made pleasure. God created nature, the mountains, 
the ocean, the Grand Canyon. He created those things. He created human relationships, relational, physical, all of those things. He created that. He created food. He created good drink. These are good and right things, but in the right place, in the right place. So biblically, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11 says this, he, meaning God, he has made everything beautiful in its time and he has put eternity into man's heart. You may have heard this verse before because if you grew up in church, this is where the idea of like the God-shaped hole in your heart, like that's that only God can fill. That's where this came, it might be cliche, but it's in the book, okay? Like that's, that's this God-shaped hole. It's this eternity into man's heart. Hear me, only the eternal can actually fill the longings of your heart. No pleasure can fill you when only the eternal can. This is why everything else that you might pursue in a hedonistic way will eventually run out of steam. Eventually, it will stop being the thing that you actually want, that you actually desire, that's actually pleasurable. Because they're temporal things. They're temporal things trying to fill an eternity hole in your soul. So if we look at this world through a gospel lens rather than through the hedonistic lens, you were created for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, for a, a relationship, the presence of Jesus to fill you and give you what the world's pleasures cannot ever give you. That's a better lens. It's a better lens. So as we transition, do you find yourself at all struggling with the lens of hedonism? Because I'll tell you, in the burbs, man, this is our thing. Actually, it's one of our things. Okay, this hedonistic lens, this one is almost true of every single one of us, no matter how mature you are in your faith. Pleasure, comfort, things, a little bit more money, a little bit more stuff, your kid at the right school, a little bit better this or that, and then life will have its purpose. It's a hedonistic lens. It's a hedonistic lens. Okay, lens number two. The second lens uh, or worldview is the moralistic lens. Moralism, moralism. This is a... Maybe a little bit newer, although there's been versions of moralism throughout uh, the centuries. But what has happened historically is hedonism won. I don't know if you knew that, okay? But in the late 20th century, back in the 1900s, you following me? Hedonism won, okay? It won. And by the early 2000s, early 2000s maybe, we get to this point where all of the lines of morality, the repressive old school leave it to beaver rules, all of them had been pushed or broken. Okay, pushed to the edge, especially from a pop culture way of life. Okay, so shows like The Simpsons kind of started some of this and then like Seinfeld and then Friends and then South Park just blew the whole thing up. I mean, really. Really? There's no rules anymore. What used to be rated R is now rated like G, right? My daughter's watching it on Disney Plus. Like that's how things have changed, okay? MTV, the objectification of women in music, the, 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 the glorification of violence. These things were made very, I mean, almost commonplace 
We became desensitized to these things. Madonna to Britney to Paris Hilton, all of these things in the early 2000s, that's, that's where we got. Hedonism won. Hedonism won, but then questions began to surface. Like how far is too far? Okay, what things are culturally off limits to talk about? And where is that line? And who gets to make that line? And who gets to cross that line? And a new moralistic lens began to popular, like in a populist way, began to form, not from the church, not from us, not from believers or faiths or anything like that, but from progressive secular culture in things like political correctness. Okay, virtue signaling, you may have heard that term been thrown around. And even cancel culture. This is a new way of looking at the world and it is moralistic and it's built out of a secular framework. It's fascinating. So let's answer our questions, okay? Let's answer the, 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 the questions here. What is the purpose of life in a moralistic worldview? Well, the answer is to do good. That sounds, of course, you're like, yeah, right? If you're moral, you're trying to do good. This has happened in all sorts of moralistic frameworks. But in this lens, to pursue pleasure is no longer enough. You must also pursue good as a part of that. Now, let's think about this, okay? Uh, we broadcast to the world not how hedonistic our lives are anymore, but rather how moral our lives are now. Uh, you, this means that we put filters on our social media pictures that say whatever cause we're interested in. It's still you, right? It's your face, but it's support this or support that. I stand with this. I stand with that. Bumper stickers, posters, posts, social media, all of the things. It's now about presenting a moral stance, not just I've got all the toys. I've got the life. I'm living the dream. And it's still hedonistic because we're deriving pleasure from it, but it's a pleasure of feeling moral. You following me here? It's almost like uh, the hedonist thinks it's cool to be bad. But the moralist thinks it's cool to be good. Like polar opposites posturing for affirmation from everyone else. So that's the purpose, to do good. Well, then what's the world? Well, the world, to the moralist, is a good place that's been ruined. It's a, it's a good place. It was good, it was beautiful, it was pure, but people have created problematic structures and now it's all a mess. Now it's all messed up. That's the world. So, so then what's sin? What's broken in this framework? Well, sin from a moralistic viewpoint is ignorance. Ignorance. If you talk with people who are moralists, whether they're religious moralists, kind of like the Pharisees in the Bible, or whether they're kind of secular moralists, like you might see even today posturing themselves in our news and in our uh, world, um, there's almost an elitism of saying, if you just knew, if you just knew, like if you just, if you just read these books, 
Or I, I've, got a, I've got a TED Talk that you need to watch. If you just watch this TED Talk and, 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 then, and then you would know the, the realities of this person or this people's plight in life, then you'd be enlightened like me and then you'd know. Ignorance is sin. There's some elitism in the view of others as ignorant, just like we get from the Pharisees in the scriptures, y'all. This is elitism. And they just think if you just, if you just knew, if you just educate these people, they'd see the light. And that actually is the solution that's proposed by the moralists. Education. We educate. We need to inform everyone through visible education about what the new moral code is. And then through these campaigns, ignorance will be pushed back and the world will enter into a new moral utopia of peace and love. I mean, tell me this isn't true. Now, again, there is truth in the moralistic lens, okay, in the moralistic framework. I just need you to know there's truth in every one of these. And the truth here is that we are, as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, we are also called to be moralistic, to have character, to follow the morals that are laid out in the scriptures. Absolutely. There's a moral vision in the scriptures for God's people. We are called to do good. You ever heard the scripture, don't be merely hearers of the word, but be doers of the word? We study that in James. So we are called to that, but the biblical vision of morality is that you can't do it. You can't be good. There is no one good, no, not one. The biblical vision is that you can't muster up enough morality to be good enough. And so you need someone else to be good for you, right? Our morality, our virtue, it actually comes from another. It comes from God. It's not just know better and try harder. See, um, education. Okay, education is how they are proposing a solution here. Education uh, as the solution to make people more moral is just like what Christians, evangelical Christians even, have done in kind of the outside-in approach to a relationship with God as opposed to kind of the inside-out transformational approach to discipleship. If you've been around church for a while, you know this conversation, but the outside-in approach is if I just do the good moral things and I get the outside of my life working, then the inside will follow. But the inside-out transformation is God gives us, he imputes to us his righteousness through Christ's work on the cross. And then out of the, the rescuing that he does in my heart, I begin to want to pursue a moral life. It's managing sin versus kind of an inside-out transformation. And so the illustration I've used in the past, I'll use it again. This summer, Harper took swimming lessons, okay? Another good part of the summer is her learning not to die in a pool. Um, Harper took swimming lessons. One of her favorite parts of the swim lessons was the kickboard, right? The kickboard, okay? You know what this thing is? It's like a highly buoyant piece of something that's blue that, you, you know, it's, I don't know, it's a kickboard, okay? I call it lazy man swimming 
because it just keeps you afloat. I mean, I don't know how you're learning to swim with it, but it's, it's cool. Uh, so I bought her a kickboard. Like the, the swim teacher had one. I bought her her own so we could take it to our pool. And the game we'd play at our pool with the kickboard is the game I played at the pool, the YMCA, when I learned to swim as a kid uh, with the kickboards there. And that's where we'd push the kickboard under the water and try and like stand on it or hold it under the water for as long as we can, right? That's the game. Uh, and, and the very buoyant kickboard under the water made it difficult the further under the water it got. So how long you could hold the kickboard under the water depended on how strong you are, right? I was very good at this game. <laughs> Harper was not, okay? But it did, listen, it, even between the two of us, it didn't really matter how good or how bad you were at it because eventually, even for one of such incredible physical prowess, um, eventually that kickboard is coming up out of the water and if you aren't cut, it doesn't float up gently. That thing rockets up and it'll jack you in the grill, right? It'll just hit you right in the dome and take you out. That's what the kickboard does, all right? Um, that's moralism. That's a picture of moralism. Depending on how strong you are, how disciplined you are, how maybe privileged you are, you can hold that sin under the water, maybe for a good long time. But no matter how strong you are, eventually you're gonna get out of the pool, eventually your arms are gonna get tired, and then that thing will jack you. That's how all moralism goes, always. It only works until it doesn't. But if we look if we look at the world not through a moralistic lens, but through a gospel lens, listen, you were created to do good, but, but there's no one who can do it. But Jesus has provided a way through his life, death, and resurrection for you to actually be moral. This is a better lens. This is a better lens. So you struggle with moralism? There are morals on the social left and on the social right and then on the religious left and on the religious right. Trying to push that thing down in the water under your own power, that's, that's moralism. That's the moralistic lens. Okay, lens number three. Lens number three. It's the therapeutic lens. Therapeutic lens. This is a very popular lens in our day and age. It's a popular lens. It's only getting more popular, okay? Uh, this is the lens that is focused, it's not focused on the pursuit of pleasure, okay? It's not even primarily focused on doing good. Uh, the therapeutic lens, its purpose is that it's all about feeling peace. Feeling the all-elusive, internal, existential peace. To survive in the craziness of this world, I got to center myself and I need to go inward and I need a sense of peace. I need inner peace. So there's a lot of language wrapped up in kind of the therapeutic worldview about mental health and about therapy and about counseling. And, and I just want to say off the bat, all of those things are good. All of those things are good. We're going to break those stigmas down. Like those are good things. I've been very open with you over the years about my struggles with depression and anxiety and being in counseling. I'm still in counseling today. Like I've been open about those things, but 
The problem with this is not therapy and counseling and, and, and mental health. The problem is when you start elevating it to the, the worldview status, to a lens by which you see everything. And I think you'll see this is where the problem is. You'll see it. Let's, let's work through these questions, okay? What is the world in the therapeutic lens? Well, the world is dangerous. It's not a playground. You might fall off that slide. It's not a good place ruined. I can't even imagine it being a good place, right? It's actually a dangerous place. The world is dangerous. It's filled with pain. It's filled with trauma. It's filled with discomfort. What is sin then in this? Well, well, sin is causing mental or emotional pain to another. Causing any sort of pain to another is sin. Sin is causing distress. Sin is perceived unsafety. Sin is triggering somebody. Whether you meant it or not, it's sin. So then what's the solution proposed by the therapeutic worldview? Well, I would say that the solution is safety. It's safety. See, the solution is to make you feel good by protecting you from any bad feeling. Make you feel good by protecting you from any bad out there. The solution is to make you feel good. So, so there's call a call from kind of the therapeutic lens worldview to create safe spaces. As if a safe space could genuinely be created, but, but it's to create a safe space to protect one against anything that might trigger one. Everyone is fragile in this worldview. And we need to protect, protect, protect. It's like a, it's like a helicopter parent just making sure their child doesn't stub their toe anywhere along the way. We need to create a world of safety. Now, I will say this again. There is truth in this worldview. There is truth in this lens. God speaks to us through his word about peace. Peace is offered to us, to the follower of Jesus, but it's different. Okay, Philippians 4 says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a famous passage. Famous passage about peace that surpasses or transcends understanding or comprehension. And that sounds great. Right? That sounds like the solution through the therapeutic lens is peace. Right? Peace that is transcendent. But do you remember, if, if you know your Bible, remember where Paul's writing Philippians from? He's in prison. He's in prison writing this letter. And he will later go on in chapter 4 to this verse in chapter tw uh, 4, verse 12. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. And then he says every football player's favorite verse in verse 13. I can do all things 
through Christ who strengthens me. In the context of abundance and hunger, suffering and comfort. You see, the Christian does not find peace, hear me, in safety. We find the secret to peace in Jesus, not in safety, not in avoiding pain or avoiding danger or avoiding triggers. It's actually found in Christ. We believe a lie that if we could just get everything in line in our circumstances, like if we could just have all smooth sailing, that at that point we would find complete safety and then we would have peace. But that's a myth. Jesus doesn't promise to make everything better in your life. He says, I'm just, I'm better than life and I'll be with you. This is the peace of Christ. Peace that Jesus gives us is not therapeutic in its nature. Okay, it doesn't happen because you find a safe space with like a cozy chair and a warm beverage and some essential oils and you bliss out to some like Icelandic electronica music, right? Like that's just... That's not what this is. It's supernatural peace. It's transcendent. It means it's above what we can cobble together in this place. It's wholly different from the peace you can muster on your own. So I'm not dogging therapy, counseling, all the mental health thing. I'm not dogging that at all. But there is a peace that can be found that... That, that survives even when you're not okay. Right? Even when you aren't safe. Even when you're triggered, there is a peace that can transcend that. That's what the gospel lens offers us up against the therapeutic lens. Okay, last lens. We are running out of time. Last lens for this morning is the nihilistic lens. Nihilism. The nihilistic worldview is that life is meaningless. Nihilism has been around for a long time. It's, a, it's not a new philosophy. It's been around for a long time. But this lens is becoming more and more mainstream. And it seems to be, I think, the fastest growing of these four lenses, especially in emerging generations. Let, let me work this out, okay? The, the purpose of, the light, of, of life in a nihilistic worldview is to feel nothing. The purpose of life is to feel nothing. Pleasure, that's too difficult to attain. Doing good, what's the point? Feel peace, you serious? Good luck, good luck with that. How's that working out for you? It's just better to feel nothing. See, to the nihilist, the world is a disaster. See little to no hope for the future when you're looking through the nihilistic lens. In fact, um, as you read about uh, a great many of the mass shootings that have happened in the last couple of decades, uh, very often the shooters are not on an ideological quest or like some radical political agenda. Sometimes they are. But often... Very often, actually, these people are people who see through the lens of nothing matters. There's no hope. The, the world is a pure disaster. That's nihilistic. 
It's almost a hatred of the world. This place is beyond redemption. What's sin to a nihilist? Sin is everywhere. It's in everything. It's in every person. It's in every institution. It's everywhere. It permeates everything. It's all corrupt. It's all unjust. It's all doom and gloom. Let's just welcome to reality. This is what it is. So what's the solution? Well, their answer is escape. To the nihilist, the only way out is out. We ain't fixing this thing. We're out of here. Escape into the world of distraction. From TV to video games to augmented reality, again, none of those things are wrong, but, but they are a means of escape to the nihilist. Escape into a world of self-medication, right? Drugs, alcohol, food, anything that would numb it out. Numb out the pain, numb out the, the angst, numb out the sin, numb out the, just numb it. Escape from reality. See, the real world is too dark and depressing, and so it's time to escape. And I just want you to know, this is growing. I think this worldview is growing at an alarming rate. We just prayed over teachers and administrators and people who are working with students in schools. Watch out for this one. I think this one is an emerging, specifically with emerging generations. Not, I mean, that's a generalization, but that's, this, is an, this one's nerve-wracking. Nerve now, now, there is an element of even the nihilistic worldview that's true, though. There is part of this that's true, okay? Listen, as Christians, we believe this. The world is broken. The world is corrupt. We will be let down by this world. The doctrine of total depravity Okay, this is a real thing, but the Christian also professes that this world is not our home. This world is not what it will be one day, right? Our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our hope isn't in escape. Our hope isn't in fixing it. Our hope is in Christ. It's a different lens. It's a better lens, friends. So this is the chart, the chart. I thought it was really helpful. There are undoubtedly more lenses than this, but these, I think, are, they cover a wide range culturally for us right now, these four lenses. Now, uh, I want to, it's easy to, I think, sit and read this and then think that I know that person, my neighbor. They're pure hedonists. New car every six months, right? Like, oh gosh, like that. It's easy to, it's easy to point the finger. It's easy to be like, oh goodness, I, you know, I'm watching my kids become this new breed of moralist. Everybody's talking about their mental health, so it's got to be a therapeutic lens. I just want, I want us to take a step back for a second and not, not point the finger outward, but start to do some introspective work. Because I want us to be honest and admit that there are times, listen, maybe even seasons, when we look through any one of these lenses, sometimes two or three at the same time. This isn't so binary and linear as I just take off this lens and put on this lens. These are pervasive among, amongst us, even evangelical Christian churches. 
Let's not pretend that Christians aren't prone towards hedonism or moralism or the therapeutic or even towards just throwing our, our hands up and with a prayer saying, God, just take me away. I'll fly away, Lord. Just come rescue me from this. I don't think this world has anything. And I would just say all of those are not biblical worldviews, even for the Christian to believe. See, we do have a different lens. We do have a different lens that the rest of the world doesn't have. The gospel has a different take on those four questions. What's the purpose of life in the Christian worldview? The purpose of life is to worship God. It's to worship. You were created with a purpose, and it's to glorify God with the whole of your life. What is the world in the Christian worldview? The world's being redeemed. God is at work in the world. He created the world for us. He created us to live in perfect relationship with him and with one another. He gave us work to do to cultivate the ground to actually do something in this world. And yeah, it got broken, but now Jesus is in the process of making all things new. And we get to play a role in that by being agents of reconciliation. The world is actually a work in progress. It's being redeemed. Well, then what's sin? Sin is our rebellion against God. It's us breaking from God and wanting instead to be independent creatures. To quote Genesis 3, it's it's wanting to be gods ourselves. You will be like God if you eat the fruit. And then what's our solution? Well, our solution, the gospel lens solution is a relationship. I know that's churchy, but like it is a relationship with Jesus. We are sinners saved by grace on the cross. Christ pays the price for that sin. He rises from the grave and there's an invitation for us to bend the knee to him, call him king and have our lives completely transformed solution to the mess of this world is Christ, okay? It's a relationship with him where he declares you right, where he adopts you into his family, where he calls you his son, his daughter. That's the solution. You knew I was going to come there, right? Like that's kind of, we're a church. That's kind of what the gig is, okay? But, but then the question becomes, well, how, like how, how do I, how do I see through that lens? Because these other lenses are pervasive. Man, these other lenses I've got on repeat through my head. I read the news and I freak out. I read the news and I get angry. I read the news and I feel like everybody's talking down to me like they're elite. How do we align our sight with the gospel lens more and more and more? Well, I want to offer that it's not by simply trying harder. Right? That's the moralistic way. That's the moralism Christian answer. Just try harder. Just do better. You know more now. You listen to the sermon. You took a picture of the chart. It's in your phone. Now that you know, stop looking through those lenses. That's the moralistic lens actually talking to you, right? It's actually not by simply trying harder. It's by believing the solution more and more. Believing in the solution It's by believing that we are sons, that we are daughters, that we are adopted into God's family. 
So a friend of mine told me a story of, um, of when he and his wife adopted one of their sons from another country. And, um, and, and this son that they adopted, he had been raised uh, in a country that had an orphanage system. He was in an orphanage for the, maybe the first four to five years of his life um, where he was taken care of, um, but there was no real relational care going on there. Okay, the caretakers were, were greatly outnumbered by the number of orphans. And so, uh, like, we would use the language that this boy came uh, with some uh, emotional neglect. He hadn't been emotionally cared for, even though he wasn't starved or anything like that. Well, um, his, his adoptive parents, they got him, they brought him home. And, and when they got him home, he started to show some signs of, like, emotional and behavioral issues in their home. Okay, he would... Uh, he would have outbursts of anger and rage. Uh, he, he would, they, they had other children. He would take things from his, those other kids, his now siblings. He would take them and he would hide them as his own. Shove them under his bed and hide them away. Often he would take extra food and go to the pantry and take food and hide it. Almost like he was storing up for when it wouldn't be available anymore. And they tried to lovingly care for him, but they didn't really know what to do. So, so they asked their counselor. They had been going to a professional counselor to help them as they were making the adjustments to adopting this, this child. And, and the counselor told them to try something new that they hadn't tried before. And this is what the counselor said. They said, for one hour each day, why don't you guys sit down on the floor with your son? And the mother would hold the son in her lap, just kind of hold him, cradle him there. And the father would sit opposite of him and just look him right in the eyes. And for an hour each day, he would then speak to his son and he would say, you're my son. I love you. I am your father. I adore you. And then the next day they would do it again, but, but they would flip-flop. And dad would sit and put the boy in his lap and mom would sit and make eye contact with the son and say, you are my son. I love you. I am your mother. I adore you. And my friend told me they did this for weeks and weeks. And it started that the boy would fight and would try and break away from mom or dad and he didn't want to sit there and he was distracted sometimes he would cry sometimes he would scream at them but over time not overnight but over the course of days and weeks the behavior started to change their son started to change he started to believe what they were telling him. Why? Like, why did that work? It wasn't because he needed to know what was right or wrong. He didn't know who he was. You are my son. And it wasn't that he needed to know that the rule wasn't, don't take the toy from your brother. Don't steal the food and put it under your bed. There's more food, I promise. It's not that he needed more information. He needed identity. You're my son. I'm your father. And I love you. Church, 
You don't align align yourself to the vision of a gospel lens by simply trying harder. By simply learning more and doing better. You do it by knowing. By believing more deeply that you are a child of God loved by your father. And so that's the message for us today. I know it was a lecture of sorts, but the message is from the father to each one of us, a son or a daughter, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are my child. I love you. Don't believe what these other lenses tell you. Believe my gospel, believe the good news. You are my child and I love you. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for the wisdom and the knowledge and the study and the research of many of the men that I read and that I listened to that helped me see some of these things. And, and I hope, Lord, that, that seeing these different worldviews, that seeing these different lenses is helpful for us as we process all the things that are going on in this world, the good and the bad, the high and the low, the true and the false. But then, Lord, also I praise you for the gospel lens that we find in Scripture. I bless you, Father, that you have made a way for us to truly find ultimate pleasure in you, to truly find ultimate goodness and morality in you, to genuinely have peace that surpasses all understanding and to reckon honestly with the brokenness of this world. Only through the gospel lens can we see all three, all four of these things clearly. So Holy Spirit, would you help us with this? Would you point out things in our hearts that are out of line with you and your way of seeing things? We want to see through a gospel lens more and more, each day more. But we can only do that through the empowerment of the Spirit and the belief that we are adopted sons and daughters into your family. So Father, help us today to do this. We will never be able to do it without you. We rely fully on you. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.